0: Anybody's welcome to, but otherwise I will. Um, okay, so, was, so we so st- we we read the story about the the uh, events at Karmel and uh, the aftermath of it, and now and now we see that um, Eliyahu he's a he's a very stoic person, and uh, and he. He also, he perceives things in a very idealistic way. In a certain sense, you could say he's naive as much as he is such a, obviously, a very principled uh, individual because he expects other people to be the way that he is. And uh, he's he's a person of an ish emet. So he expects that because he's proven his case, of course, once you've proven your case, you uh, you know you expect that the, the discussion is over. So he subordinates himself basically and runs before the chariot of Ahav because now he feels that Ahav is basically converted to a true Melech Israel who's gonna be uh, who's going to be u- using his uh, Malchut to serve God the way that he's supposed to. Is you- but that doesn't last uh, very long.
1: Is there any comparison? Aggressive-
0: um, I, you know, as I was saying, his ish emet that idea like flitted through my mind also, but I can't think of any example of that in particular. But there's definitely a on the surface a similarity in the sense that they both are um, seem to be absolutist in their views. Yonah, in terms of assessing the people of Nivay and how he judges them, and uh, Eliyahu also. So. You could, I could definitely see a comparison there. I don't know of any official comparisons, but there's you could see a similarity for sure. So Achav recounts to uh, Izvel all that Eliyahu had done uh, with the uh, Tarakarmel, and uh, and and that he killed the Neviim, and now. Now, uh, seemingly you would expect that uh, it seems from the, from the context that Ahab is reporting this because he's so impressed at the demonstration that was made. And ever since the moment that Eliyahu proved his case, we don't see that Ahab showing, um, showing any of his usual uh, bitterness directed towards Eliyahu seems like he, he he's actually coming to tell Izevel that he's had an epiphany and he realizes that uh, the Baal is not real. And maybe he figures that if he recounts to Izevel what he saw, she will also uh, appreciate it. But it doesn't work. malach el See, she doesn't use the biblical terminology of a Jew. Ko se Elohim because that would be only one God. Because she's talking about more than one. Tomorrow I will make your soul like the soul of one of them, meaning you are going to be a dead man. She doesn't say this to Achav. Very interesting. We don't see that there was a fight between Achav and Izebel. We say that Achav came home to Izebel with this report probably expected to be really impressed. And instead, she threatens Eliau. Eliau probably finally felt he could rest on his laurels for a few minutes and uh, enjoy being back home in Malchut Yisrael and living an, an, an ordinary life, whatever his ordinary life was before all of this, which is not entirely clear. We know that he lived in Gilad, right? So uh, he thought he would be able to resume ordinary life. But the minute that he feels that he has plateaued and he has or he's achieved his... Um, He's achieved his uh, mission, accomplished his mission. He's ever wants, wants to kill him again. He runs to uh, Malchut Yehuda. Be'er Sheva is not in Malchut Israel. Be'er Sheva is all the way down south. So he he runs to the to the southern uh, southern kingdom, and he's hiding there because I guess he feels that he could get some kind of asylum in uh, in Yudah. That's interesting that Eliyahu never seems to connect with Malchud Yudah. they didn't need him, so he didn't uh, he didn't uh, manifest any presence there. na he leaves his uh, he leaves his attendant there. All of a sudden he has an attendant who knew that he had one. You know, it never gives us a complete picture of exactly how uh, he operates. So he goes to beersheva first, apparently to escape from Izevel. and uh, and uh, then he um, then he leaves the uh, Na'ar there. Now here you go. Here's Yona again, like you were saying. There's a, there's a Yona uh, similarity, like you said. So that's Soshan's intuition is uh, very sharp. He knows he knows his Tanakh, and um there's definitely that that can't be missed, that similarity to uh, Yonah for sure. He comes now. Yonah also was under the key but um, so this is not exactly that, but he says. Just take me and let me die because I'm no better than my forefathers. What does that mean? What does it mean? What forefathers? We don't even know who the guy's forefathers are. We don't know anything about him. So who is he talking about? What kind of an expression is he saying here? Wait, he's not referring to like Abraham, Isaac, and Yaakov? Yeah, I mean, it doesn't seem like that.
2: Out, see
0: that you know?
2: What? just saying that just like Four
0: fathers, the same fate death in my so, another way of that. If if you, is- the Mephoshim seemed to interpret it as he's saying, "My, le- I've, I've lived long enough and I don't need to live any longer. Like as if he's comparing himself to the people who lived very long in the past, you know? I'm not gonna live any longer than the people in the past, I'm not gonna live forever so I might as well die. But my se- that was never my sense of really what he means. I mean, I think what he means is that uh, I failed.
1: Yeah, it seems like he feels failed. He failed, like he failed. Like he thought that the whole the whole buildup was Hashem. I know what I'm doing. I'm gonna make this whole scene, and then everyone is gonna do teshuvah because I know this is the way it has to be done. Everyone in a moment is gonna realize right and wrong, and, and I'm gonna be and then today Israel is gonna be perfect again. So he does this whole scene. And Isabel waits one day and says, okay, they like you now, but tomorrow they're not gonna like you anymore. And when they don't like you anymore, I'm gonna come kill you. So now he he realizes there's truth to that. Like, wow, like everything I built up, three years of of famine or three years of no water, and everything I built up to up now to get to the point where everyone's is undermined in just one one day. So I'm just as bad as them. Like, okay, so like it's a reflection on his life. I failed right. as a Navi. I didn't do what I was supposed to do. Hashem was right. I was wrong.
0: Right. This was his whole project, and it just became, it just failed in one moment. As it it seemed to have a dramatic, yeah, it seemed like a dramatic success, and then a dramatic failure the next day. You know, it's, uh now, you can, um. You can see here that you, you can perceive this as a bit of an overreaction. Yes, it's
1: definitely a reaction. Yeah.
0: Because uh, yes. the reason why he's responding like this is because Ezebel wants to kill him.
1: Like, now been, but there's a lot
0: more people than Ezebel. Now the king is
1: going to take my counsel. And then Ezebel showed him one second. No, the king's not going to take your counsel. They have no say. I'm going to kill you.
2: Maybe it's such a sense of failure. Then, it seems like it wasn't enough time for Harakamal to be a failure in terms of the people. because you have no idea. Right,
0: we happened. don't know. We don't know, right. He just thought his position in this world would be more central
2: and not have to be on the run again. Now that he's on the run so quickly after the run. that since he feels like, well, what is this all for? If I'm, I, right, I, I, I did, did,
0: did my run. best. I, I, I did my best.
1: Right, that's what it seems. Is to be the, the 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 person standing next to the king and, and telling the king what how to act properly. So he thought now i is going to finally
2: accept me. Now I'm going to, to be. My, he's going to
0: become my student, like the way that Shaul yeah. was, that was of, uh, <laughs> of Shmuel, or the way that uh, or the way that David was a student of Natana Navi or something like that. So he. He, uh, he now sees that that's not gonna work because Izevel is a, uh, is a much more charismatic Rebbe. And uh, he's not gonna be able to prevail, even though Ahab seemed like a receptive person in those moments. That's why it's so tragic. That's why Ahab is such a tragic figure because he has potential to see the light and he, uh, he's not able to do it. He can't follow through. But the, yeah, the way that I would, like, why is he saying I'd rather die because uh, I I don't have to live a very long time like my ancestors. But I think it means just more simply that um, he's saying my meaning that nobody's ever been able to turn the situation around. I thought I was going to be able to turn the situation around. I was going to be different. It was going to be different this time. The results would be different and and the results turn out to be the same as far as he can see. At the very least, like you said, it's not so much necessarily that he gave up on the people. Maybe he inspired some of the people, but at the end of the day, if the administration remains anti-Nivu'an, anti-Hashem, so he's not gonna be able to uh, bring the administration around the way that he thought he would. So in that sense, it's a colossal failure and uh, and he feels uh, helpless. Vayishkav malach kum echol. So Hashem, uh, uh, a malach comes and tells him to get up and eat. Okay. So we don't know why this is yet. He eats and he goes back to sleep. This seems like the the actions of a depressed person. I Meaning, he, he, he's just he's just doing the minimum to uh, to survive. He doesn't have any more sense of a purpose. He's just sleeping. He doesn't have any feeling of uh, any any objective anymore. Now this is something else because you're gonna have a long way ahead of you. You have a long road ahead of you, so you better eat and drink. Now that itself, there's gotta be some poetic significance in the long road ahead. Because part of the issue with Eliyahu is he expects instant results. And, uh, and, the, and the Malach is telling him there's a long process ahead. It's not simple. And the impatience of Eliyahu, the black and whiteness of Eliyahu doesn't match the uh, reality that you the, of, of the gradual process of growth that everybody else in the story needs to undergo to get somewhere. elohim <laughs> Now you can see something about the story. This is the kind of story in Tanakh that the Rambam would for sure say is just happening in a dream and not in reality because he went to sleep and the Rambam would say that this is all happening in a dream. It doesn't really matter because the idea of what he's going to experience is still real but some of the Mepharshim would interpret it as an actual 40 day, 40 night trip Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure the Rambam would interpret this as happening in a prophetic vision. Either way, 40 days and 40 nights are obviously, and arriving at the mountain of God is obviously a reference to which person spent 40 days and 40 nights without eating or drinking? Right, he's literally going to the same place as Moshe Rabbeinu. And doing the same thing of 40 days and 40 nights of not eating or drinking. Now there were two times actually that Moshe Rabbeinu uh, uh, had that experience. There were two times that he spent 40 days and 40 nights on the mountain without eating or drinking. One was when he received the Torah and the other one was where he was praying for the forgiveness of the uh, Chet Egya. And these are two very different experiences. Or so it would seem. Right? This experience is going to be very similar to the Ma'am Harsinai Sinai
1: taking the Torah experience. getting the Torah experience. Hashem is going to go in front
0: of you. Oh no. No, that happened in the other one. Yeah. When he comes for the second Luchot is when Hashem passes by and he has Hashem El-Rachum L'chanun. Right? More like so it's similar. What else is similar between the circumstances of Eliyahu and the circumstance of, uh, of Moshe Rabbeinu in the, in the uh, second time he goes up to Arsinai? What about the precipitating cause? Remember, Moshe Rabbeinu came down from his 40 days and 40 nights on the mountain to re- receiving the Torah to find that the Jews were worshipping uh, Egel HaZahav. And because they're worshiping Egel Azav, first he corrected their sin, meaning he he first made them burn the Egel and drink it and uh, and you know kill all the people who were actively involved in it and all of that. And then he went back up to the mountain to pray for forgiveness for them. So could there be a lesson here to Eliyahu, instead of anger directed at your frustration at what you didn't achieve, Maybe you should be focusing on the people that you that just you know you just had a, a great intervention similar to Moshe Rabbeinu breaking them away from the Avodah Zorah. Maybe your role right now should be the healing of the people from the uh, Avodah Zorah, not focusing on the uh, not focusing on your frustration, the area of your frustration that you you didn't get into the court of Avachav. You know, and that's the. Uh, in other words, that, that first the first time Moshe Rabbeinu was on the mountain was Midat Adin. He, he, was, he was receiving the Torah, the law, the, the, the principles of the law. And when he came down and he saw that the Jewish people had strayed from the covenant, he, he responded very, you know, in, he broke the luchot and he corrected the behavior and he punished the criminals and so on. And then he went back up the second time. That was Midat Rachamim to try to get the second luchot from Hashem, and to renew the, the, the Brit, And really, really what uh, Eliyahu and Navi should be doing is something along those lines, you would think. He comes to the cave and he sleeps over. Vinei devar This is one of the most famous the, uh, scenes. What are you doing here, Eliyahu? Okay, Now, who told him to go there? Who told him to come here? The Malach of Hashem told him to come here, right? Because I said, you have a long trip. You're going to go to the Chorev. So why is he asking, what are you doing here? Why is he asking, what are you doing here? If really uh, he sent him there. What's the answer?
1: They found another uh, um, uh,
0: similarity to Yonah. Yeah? Uh, at the bottom of the, the, bottom of the ship, he says, Malach, you Oh, sure. yeah. here and... That's I'm good, yeah. yeah. There's definitely some, there's definitely a, and, and we know that Yonah was also a Navi that was about the Midat Adin, And he didn't want the Midat okay. Right? So, so there's definitely a similarity. And here's the famous Pasuk of Eliau, Vayomer, Kano, Kineti, Lashem, Eloise, Tibaot, Tiazvu, Techabene Israel, Edmizbohotecha, Harasu, Fedneviecha, Rugu Beharev, Vaivate, Ali Vadi. I just say Malafa for Eliyahu. Like, is he saying, like, what are you
1: doing up here? You're a uh, Nabi, you're, uh, you're, uh, and therefore you should deal with the people?
0: Like,
1: what, what are you doing on the top of a
0: mountain? Like, is that Malafa or? Why does he ask him what are you doing here if he sent him there? Right? He's there? He said
2: there's a long road ahead. But I don't even know where he was called to.
0: Well, I don't think he came here by accident. It seems like that was where he was directed to go. I don't
2: know where we would see that. He was told to eat up and race, race for something. But we don't know what the
0: something is. So so you're saying maybe he went on his own? It could be that he had the intent to go there and the Malach said, okay, so eat some food so you can go there. But either way, there are (coughs) two significations, I think, to going to Ar Sinai after 40 days and 40 nights of not eating. One could be a remez to the first experience of Moshe Rabbeinu, one could be a remez to the second. The first is a separation from the people in order to reach the highest level of and to, uh, to receive the Torah. The other one is in order to uh, seek uh, mercy for the people and to uh, restore the covenant between Hashem and the people. These two times that Moshe Rabbeinu went on Tar-Sinai with the 40 days and the 40 nights. So maybe what he's asking him is, what is your intention? Are you here to isolate yourself, to try to, elevate yourself above and apart from the people or are you here because you want to try to find a way to bridge the gap between Hashem and the people because those are the two meanings of coming to Har Chorev that Moshe Rabbeinu did with the 40 days and the 40 nights and, uh, and if you look sometimes 40 days and 40 nights of Noah is saving the world 40 days and 40 nights of, uh, of uh, Moshe Rabbeinu in the second iteration is saving the Jewish people so, but if you're, but, you know, that, that's the question. But the first 40 days and 40 nights, of course, was just a sort of ivory tower thing where he was separating from the distractions of the people in order to attain the highest level of knowledge of God. So which one of these those things is, is your intention? And then he gives the list. He says, I've been very zealous for Hashem because they, the Jewish people abandoned your covenant and they destroyed your Mizbachot and they killed your prophets, and I'm the only one left, and now they want to kill me too. (laughs) Hashem does not respond to this. Right? He doesn't respond to it. And we know that there's a very, very famous, um, there's a very, very famous uh, Chazal about this. Probably everyone's heard it before. Very famous chazal that they said that when 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 Eliyahu said, Kano l'ashem Hashem said, Were you zealous for me or for you? And then he said, Because they've abandoned your covenant. And Hashem said, Was it my covenant that you were worried about, or your covenant? And then he said, And they've destroyed your altars. And Hashem said, were they my altars you're worried about or your altars? In other words, the question is, is Eliyahu more concerned about his own success or failure or legacy or or whatever it is, accomplishment, than he is really about Kiddush Hashem? Because if he were really concerned fully about Kiddush Hashem, would he have been, uh, would he have taken the, the, the approach that he did of it being all or nothing as far as he was concerned? And so now Hashem gives him the famous Vision. This is exactly like what happened to Moshe Rabbeinu the second time when he restored the covenant. Hashem passed. Very, very famous scene. First, he has the loud wind that. Of, a, a mountain crushing wind before Hashem, but Hashem wasn't found in the wind. And then uh, uh, an earth loud uh, uh, ra'ash is a uh, uh, you know some kind of a, uh, a sound thunder, whatever it is. And, and that was not a uh, and that and Hashem's presence wasn't in there. And then there was fire, which is of course Eliyahu's method of choice in dealing with problems. And lo, ba'esh Hashem, Hashem was not in the fire either. And then there was a small, still voice, the cold Mamadaka. Okay, so what is it trying to... Sh- and it doesn't say that the uh, that Hashem was not in the voice or was in the voice. It doesn't say anything. But by implication, because it says He wasn't in any of the other ones, the implication is that He was in a small voice, right? So what is the... Uh, so everyone understands what the metaphor here is. That in the dramatic and bombastic and extreme events like the wind... And the fire and the and the, and the thunder—that's not where you find God. In other words, real knowledge of God doesn't emerge like that. It doesn't happen in a uh, in a in a sudden uh, melodramatic moment of transformation. That's that's a nonsense. That's an empty emunah comes from that. A person you know goes has one experience and overnight they're transformed into a believer. Uh, that that's somebody who's. Uh, who has a very superficial emuna, but a real genuine understanding of God happens gradually, not from overwhelming the person, but from a, a small still voice. What does a small still voice mean? When a voice is small and still, what does it mean? The other things were moving, right? The winds, they were passing by, right? These were things passing by shem is passing by and first a wind passes by and some thunder passes by and then some fire passes by and then there's a small still voice. What's the difference And all of the other sensory experiences? They overwhelm you. They pass by and they overwhelm you. But this, if you have a small still voice, what happens if there's a small still voice? You come closer to it it's still and small so you come you approach it to hear it doesn't overwhelm you so you have to approach it so the idea is you create a situation where the not where you overwhelm people and bombard them but where you you give them something that they're drawn to that they seek you want them to seek that's what a a small still voice is it's a voice that's that is standing still and is and is faint So people who who want it, they're going to come to it. And and therefore they gradually approach it. And it gets louder the more that they approach it instead of overwhelming them with the full volume of these other events. And so he's trying to show him. What? What does the word dmama mean? To be to really dmama usually means to be um, to be silent, but it means to not move, to be not moving. Or like it's a, uh, I, like uh, um, that when it talks about the when it talks about the the sun not uh, moving, right? That's one possibility. The other possibility is it means a whisper, but then a very a very faint whisper, meaning mama is quiet and and daka is very quiet. So it's uh, like uh, to you, silence is praise. So that would mean that it's a silent voice, but obviously a silent voice wouldn't mean anything. So it means a voice that is very, very faint. So the point of it is that whatever that sound is, it's a kind of a thing that you have to go to it. It doesn't come to you, it doesn't reach you fully. If you want the full experience, you you go to it. And somebody who, is, uh, who wants to reach the people has to present them with something not that overwhelms them but something that they are drawn to. You present them with something that's going to draw them. And, He covers his face with his mantle, with his cloak. And then he, uh, he goes and stands at the door of the cave. And again, Hashem asks him, what are you doing here? Now, just like before, he asked him, what are you doing here? And his answer was complaining about the people and their recalcitrance. Now, uh, and he says, kineti, I, I acted zealously to try to fight against the wrongheadedness of the Jews. So Hashem shows him this vision where he should see that overwhelming and bombarding is not effective. Hashem is found when there is something that draws us towards gradually and slowly towards an understanding of Hashem. It's a seed that flourishes slowly. After that, he goes to the door and Hashem again asks him, what are you doing here? Meaning, do you now have a different idea of what you're doing here? Because remember, when Moshe Rabbeinu went up to the top of the mountain and had the vision that Hashem passed by him, Hashem Hashem El Rachum VeChanun. what was the reason for that? The reason for that revelation was that he could take that knowledge of the Darchei Hashem and then go lead the people more effectively. That's exactly what he said. He said, reveal to me your ways and remember that this is your people. Meaning, re- if, reveal to me your ways so I can be a more effective leader of the people. And in that zechut they can emerge from this tragic situation of the Egel in a better place and, and, and find their footing again because I'll have the understanding of how to guide them in accordance with the Darchei Hashem. And the main Darchei Hashem that uh, are revealed to him is Hashem Hashem El Bechanon, the mercy and the patience and the gradual way in which Hashem leads a person to the truth. And so with Moshe Rabbeinu understanding that when he goes back to the people, he can say, yes, you failed. Yes, it's not okay that what you did. It was, it was a deviation from the will of God but there's a way to work back. There's a way to rebuild. There's a, it's not an all or nothing proposition. Yes. Um,
2: is the, I'm not sure maybe if you addressed this already, but is the out covering the space, does it have the same meaning that it had in the of not wanting to progress too much in speed knowledge or it's a different meaning?
0: Yeah, so it seems like, um, it seems like a similar idea to Moshe. In other words, Eliyahu is behaving in a manner that's similar to Moshe Rabbeinu in a lot of different ways, right? He's when when the revelation comes, he's before God. Eliyahu is very humble. He's a person. He always says, "Hashem, Hashem, amati lefanav." It's just that it's not. It's in so far as God is concerned, Eliyahu recognizes. That he is, uh, you know, that he has to cover his face when God's presence is revealed because he, he has a genuine humility relative to God. The problem is when he deals with the people, he doesn't have any tolerance for them. And the reason why is because he sees things so clearly that he doesn't have the ability to understand how people can be resistant to the message of truth and not transform their lives in an instant the way that he would. That's the problem. So when, so when Hashem says, now what are you doing here? So basically, he cut and pasted the previous pasuk right here again. Literally, word for word, he repeats the exact same thing he said before, which means what? It didn't change at all. Um, it, it didn't affect him. The what didn't affect him. It didn't change his perspective on the situation at all. Yes.
2: Uh, I'm not really sure if I believe this. I'm just trying to play devil's advocate to see if there's something on the other side. Is there a way that copying the same exact response to be that... Genuinely, this was the intent of Gaviau, even if it was misguided with the coach. At the end of the day, he did actually have Hashem's kavod in mind when he put all those
0: in. There's no... Right. I mean, there, there's... I don't think that... Um, I don't think that we would say that he didn't really have Hashem's kavod in mind in everything that he was doing. I think he does. I thought we
2: were saying that... that I thought we were expecting to the realization that there was a little bit of Hidon Kapoor
0: involved and he was humbled by that experience. I thought that's the direction you're heading in. Right. But I mean words- the, right. I mean the way that the rabbis interpret the midrash in, in the midrash suggests that they were they were giving him a critique. In other words any any Navi or any great person who fails it emerges from some defect in them. And no matter who it is, whether it's Eliyahu, Navi, or Moshe Rabbeinu, they're not perfect. They're human. So he has a defect. And his defect is that he very much wants to succeed in the mission of bringing the people to knowledge of God. A person could have a lot worse defect than that. Meaning he so much wants for the people to come to the truth. He's so invested in it. And it so much defines everything about what he Hopes and yearns for that he can't deal with the the uh, the process of um, having to uh, tolerate their uh, you know the, the level that they're at now. It, it's it's a it's a defect in a shevach. It's like you, you can't really you know you can't we we don't have the ability to uh, sit in, in judgment of a person who's an, a navi because a navi is an extremely high level person. So we're talking about someone who his whole being and existence and life is dedicated to this end of trying to bring people to knowledge of God. And he really does sincerely want that to happen. But a part of him is attached to it because of his own interest, meaning he feels that it's his his baby, it's his mission. It's something that he's taken upon himself and that there's a personal, he has a personal stake in it at this point because he's he's risked so much and he's committed so much and he's worked so hard. And and you know, Levi that a person had such a noble, I, I don't wanna put come away with a bad sense about Eliyahu. Like halivai that a person that any of us had so noble a cause that we were that devoted to that became our our, our baby basically. And and that's what happened to him. It, be, it became his baby. Now, where do you see that even a great person like Moshe Rabbeinu can fall victim to that? Because look at what happened on- uh little... What? He just learned the same thing this morning. Moshe Rabbeinu, the
1: first time he goes, he fails. It's not about the Nabi, it's about the right. have to represent right. the
0: I Right, I mean, yeah, but there- It's not an opportunity
1: about the Shem. It's not opportunity to say, okay, I get it, it's not about me. His, his, his mind should be the exact opposite of what he said before,
0: but the fact that he says the same thing again, that's
1: okay, you didn't get it, You can't be a lovey anymore. It's, right. It, it's, it's right. supposed to be right. about you, yeah, you yeah. have no those, those in mind, but you're not, you're not spreading God's you're spreading your message.
0: Right. I wouldn't go that far, see, I think that's, that might be going too far. I wouldn't say he's not really trying to promote knowledge of God and that he's some, like, egotist or something, but look, even Moshe Rabbeinu at the, uh, the dedication of the Mishkan. When he gets angry at, uh, he gets angry at the, the sons of Aaron, Eleazar Nittamar, and he says, you know, why did you not eat the Korbanot and why'd you burn it? And, you know, and then Aaron intervenes and says, oh, you know, we, we, we wouldn't have been right and all that. And then Moshe is satisfied with that. Or when they come back from Milchemet Midian and they brought the women back, they didn't kill the women and Moshe gets angry. The t- or the time that you know that he gets angry when they you know, when he loses the chance to go into Eretz Yisrael. Each time Moshe Rabbeinu gets angry, it's a very similar thing. the The, the dedication of the Mishkan, yes, it was supposed to be perfect. It was supposed to be the ultimate, uh, you know, the, the moment, the moment that we've been waiting for. Not only that Moshe Rabbeinu has been waiting for, but that since the times of the Avot, the idea of Veshachanti betocham. Is 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 the is such a a significant idea in the destiny of the Jewish people, and it got ruined because you know the, the things got messed up, and Adav and Abi who died, and then Elazar didn't follow the right procedure, and and Moshe Rabbeinu, he, he could justify if you asked him why did you go, get so upset he would have given you an answer like, well, because, you know, the Kivod Shamayim was really compromised and this wasn't supposed to be the way that the Shekhinah is revealed to Am Yisrael in an improper way. Or he would say, you know, by the Midian, milchemet Midian, they didn't understand that this is not a milchemet Kibush to conquer Midian. This was a milchama because of the Chilul Hashem that happened with the women of Midian. It had to be a certain way. He could give you a a reason, a spiritual reason, theological intellectual reason for why he was upset for why it was not the right thing. But the anger that he felt in that moment and that that colored his response showed that part of it was a personal disappointment. I was supposed to make this happen. I expected this to go a certain way and it didn't go that way. And I'm upset because yes, he wanted the right thing. He wanted the Milchemet Midian to be carried out properly. He wanted the Mishkan to be dedicated properly for the right reasons, but he, he, he got invested personally in it. And when you get invested personally, you get really upset. It will be like a wedding planner, okay? A wedding planner, it's not really their wedding, right? So you would think that they wouldn't really get emotional about running the wedding or managing the wedding because it's not their, uh, it's not their wedding. But because it's their job, they do get upset. Right? They do get frustrated and upset when things are not going well, because it reflects on them. And this is their job. Now, really, now if you ask them, why are you getting upset, chill out? They'll say, well, you know, Tom and Mary's wedding is getting ruined because of this and that, right? They're not going to say it's because they personally are feel upset that they're failing in their task. They're going to say it's because the wedding of the bride and groom is not going well. But they do have the difference between a person who is dis, who is totally only there for the sake of the ultimate goal and the person who has some personal investment of their ego in the process is the emotional aspect. That Eliyahu gets angry and he gets frustrated, or Moshe Rabbeinu gets angry and frustrated. He doesn't just see it as a, a missing of the mark, we didn't achieve the goal. It's a it's a chilul Hashem. It's a concern that needs to be addressed quickly and taken seriously. What is the right way to fix it? What is the right way to to approach it? He's not taking the approach of the individual who is um, totally objective. There is a bit of subjective interest. I wouldn't say, oh, he only cares about himself. He doesn't really care about the objective. No, he definitely does. Just like the wedding planner person wants the the couple to have a good wedding. That's why they're doing that. They like to give people the enjoyment of having a beautiful wedding. But they feel also that if things don't go well, it reflects on them. They're subjectively concerned. And that's what Eliao is. And the point is that that bit of subjective Passion is coloring his ability to do what's right. Because if he didn't have that subjective self frustration, he would be able to rechart a course to try to see, okay, what's my next move in bringing Am Yisrael back to Hashem? What should I do now? Should I wait a while and lay low a while, and then come back and try this? And maybe I'll try. You know, I noticed that, that he he could have tried to recalibrate, but because he was not a hundred percent only about the objective. There was a percentage of it that was personal frustration and feeling of failure. So that colored his response to what happened. And he wasn't able to get over it. And the way he describes it, he's not lying. He really does feel that way. But the Midrash is telling you that the defect in Eliyahu is that some percentage of it, I wouldn't say the majority and I wouldn't even say a large amount enough that it's holding him back from being an effective Navi. And sometimes when you're involved in something and you become personally invested, your ego becomes invested. You no longer are able to function at, at, you know, at your best. You're no longer able to function at your best anymore because you're, because you've become compromised and you're, uh, your ability to see things objectively, and that's where he is, and that's why he gets fired, basically, not fully because he does make a comeback a couple of times, but he gets uh, Hashem says to him, yeah. Well,
2: ultimately, it's the defect that the you know, navi isn't able to get past the failure and continue with the mission. That's ultimately what negative about it's trait. That's why we—that's why it's being criticized. Because he's stopping
0: in his tracks and not... You know, yeah, because he it, for any ordinary person to have that, it's something you work on in your personality to become more Lishma. You know, but for a Navi or a leader, when a leader or a Navi becomes too personally uh, invested in, in a particular thing, or even, a, even an ordinary leader that's not a Navi, but especially a Navi, then their decisions are no longer gonna be made with a fully objective eye to what is good for the people or what method is good, because maybe that's gonna to take too long. I'm not gonna feel, it's like it says about Yoshua bin Nun, the only bad thing they say in Chazal about Yoshua Binun Nun is that he dragged out the process of, uh, of conquering the land so he wouldn't die. Because he knew that as soon as the land was conquered, there was time for him to die. So he stretched it out so he wouldn't die. And he was criticized for that, meaning that it became a personal thing that he was working on. If you asked him, he would have said, "Oh, you know, we're doing it gradually, making sure all the eyes are dotted, all of the Ts are crossed, everything is done the right way, gradual." Don't you know? But the Chazal are saying that he had a personal motive too, and that personal motive affected him, and he wasn't as he wasn't he didn't accomplish things as completely. That the That's exactly it. The Milche, right. It, 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 they, yeah. It says the people didn't want to go. They, they, they didn't want to go out to the war because they knew it was the last battle under Moshe Rabbeinu. They didn't want to go fast because they didn't want to lose Moshe Rabbeinu.
1: <clears throat>
0: yeah, so... You're passing on the baton to a new king of Aram, a new king of Israel, and a new Navi. There's going to be a totally new dynamic moving forward. so he's telling know, why him would, why would anybody so we're living here now right why would anybody know, so
1: no yeah, well, is that huh?
2: gonna, of course, who is the king. Why would
0: anybody Not in listen to Eli? Yeah. Let's his king. Well, 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 when you look at the story, he goes to him and says, God has chosen you to be the next king. I mean, <laughs> if he believes it, he believes it. But he,
1: uh would have the current king of that era, but who is this guy? Yeah, oh,
0: you're yeah. right. <laughs> he could run that risk, I guess. But Hashem is telling him basically that the, he's going to be now retiring from active duty. So he's going to be deciding on a new king of Aram, a new king of Israel, a new Navi. And between those three, you're going to see uh, totally di- a lot of changes, that there's all that's going to be left in Israel are the 7,000 people who didn't pray to the Baal. So the interesting thing is, in the end, Hashem is saying that... Uh, you're right that the people who are the Baal worshipers need to be eliminated and phased out. But it's not the way that you're doing it. It's not going to be effective. Probably one of the most amusing scenes. You have... He's out there, Elisha's out there plowing the fields. And there were uh, uh, 12 pairs of uh, cattle plowing the field. He was in number 12. He was in the last one. Eliyahu comes up to him, throws his mantle on to Elisha. So suddenly this Elisha runs after Eliyahu. Let me go kiss my mom and dad goodbye and then I'll follow you. Go back. What did I do to you? Meaning, you know, who told you to follow me anyway? Eliyahu is not impressed with Elisha's attachment to his family. Basically, he says goodbye to his family. They have one last barbecue together. At the conclusion of the barbecue, he follows Eliyahu. What a difference right away in the personality... Even though Eliyahu was told to choose Elisha as his replacement, he still approaches, when Elisha says, I want to say goodbye to my parents, was Eli- e- like, whatever, you know? I didn't tell you to follow me. Go do whatever you want. Because Elisha, you see right away, he has parents. Unlike Eliyahu that we don't know, we don't know who his parents are, or where he came from. Elisha has parents. He has relationships with people. He he has a normal job. He has a nine-to-five job plowing the fields. He sits down and eats meat with people that isn't brought to him from ravens or uh, in a miraculous dreams or from any other miraculous source. Elisha is a person of the people. Right away you see that. He has emotional attachments. He has social attachments. He doesn't run after Eliyahu Another Eliyahu would run after Eliyahu and just drop everything, because that's the way Eliyahu is. Eliyahu is an all-or-nothing, black-and-white type of guy. Oh, there's a mission. He would drop everything and go on the mission. No hesitation. No attachments. No feeling of being grounded or 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 connected to his family or anything like that. So when he sees that Elisha wants to go back, he's like, "This is a navi. What kind of a navi of Hashem is that?" Now, but what do you see about Elisha? He right away wants to follow Eliyahu and he reveres Eliyahu as somebody who has knowledge of Hashem that he wants to have. He knows who Eliyahu is right away. And when Eliyahu puts the mantle on him, that means that he wants to, he's appointing him as an avi, but he doesn't sacrifice his normal relations with his family for the sake of following him. He doesn't see a contradiction. Between having a relationship with his family and following the Derech of Eliyahu, he doesn't think it's necessary to be uh, to defi- to totally separate himself from society in order to be a navi. He sees the possibility of harmonizing uh, a normal social familial life with the life of a navi, which is what Eliyahu doesn't have and never had. And so Elisha is going to be a new. Kind of a navi, totally a navi that is very well integrated in the community and in his family, and uh, and is going to ha- and is going to approach things. See, he doesn't think things have to happen in an instant. He sat down and had a barbecue with his family. He said to Eliyahu, "I want to say give my parents a kiss goodbye," but actually, what he did was had an entire barbecue with them before he left. Right, so it's not like he is in a rush to go, meaning to say that the gradual process is okay for Elisha. He wants to go with Eliyahu. In other words, the fact that he accepts a gradual process is not a contradiction to the fact that he really wants to go with Eliyahu. In Eliyahu's mind, somebody who wants gradual means they're not serious. Oh, you don't want to go to 100% right away? You're not serious, obviously. If a person doesn't want to sit and learn in a kolel 24 hours a day, they're not serious. Because if they did care, if they really cared about learning, they would be like Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai in the cave. That's Eliyahu's philosophy. Elisha says, no, I have a very burning desire to come close to God and to be a Navi. but there's no contradiction between that and saying, I'm going to slowly transition out of my current life into this new path. I'm not going to jump from one side to the other in extreme. Gonna slowly transition. You can imagine Eliyahu saying, why are you hopping on both sides of the fence? You're just like those bald people. You're saying you wanna just be a part of this group that, that, that sits in the field and, and harvests and eats barbecues, or you wanna come with me? You can't have it both ways, says Eliyahu. But the answer is that there is a possibility of gradual transition. And there's a possibility of existing in the social framework and having relationships and interacting and yet being a Navi at the same time. And that's the, uh, that's what Elisha, how Elisha differs from Eliyahu. And that's why Elisha's is o- Elisha is always doing miracles in his stories that are miracles of chesed. Instead of miracles of din. There is one case where he does a Middat the Middata din but in general... The uh, his his derech in it in dealing with the people is midat arachami, and that's why he's beloved even by the kings that are not so good. Unlike Eliyahu, who even a king like Achav who is on the fence never can really uh, reconcile to Eliyahu. You can imagine Eliyahu would be a difficult person to uh, uh, to get along with. So the um, so this is the this is the beginning of the era of Elisha. There's obviously a couple more stories of Eliyahu. There's the story of Eliyahu when Ahav takes the uh, takes the, the vineyard of uh, of uh, Navot, and there's the story of Eliyahu going up in the, the uh, when he leaves earth in the chariot of fire. Which all of these are important uh, stories to learn, but we wouldn't be able to rush through them in such a short time. Yeah, what did you want to say? We get
1: back to the, the prophecy that Hashem gives to Eliyahu. He's okay. Basically, you're fired. So you have to do this, establish Yehu as the next king and the king of Aram. So Yehu is not for, for a few generations later. Um, yeah, he's not yet. So it's like put the change of events in motion will eventually see Yehu being uh, king. Is that what you say what you?
0: Yeah, he's saying that you're going to prepare the groundwork for the next generation, basically.
1: Because Yehu is also the one who ultimately completely annihilates many Zadar Right. So it's like, it's almost like, telling you, okay, I see what you're upset about. You're upset about the the actions of Atali Isabel. So now you can put the, the
0: chain of ch- ch- events that are gonna happen that are gonna be that are gonna delete Asad uh, authority over Israel. Right, you and, he, the and they're gonna eliminate Yehu is also gonna eliminate the Baal worship pretty much. All the Right
1: and Yehu is a very similar character to Eliel. They're both pretty zealous, wild, you know, like, uh, I'm not saying as a
0: religious figure, but as a king, he's... he's, Well, Yehu's problem is that in the beginning, he seems to be going in a direction that's good, but then he doesn't, uh, he's not able to follow through. Yeah, pretty
1: much everything in Sanam.
0: Yeah. Well, no, most of them don't even start out good. Right. But, uh, yeah, but Eliyahu, yeah, I agree. I think in that prophecy, Hashem is saying to Eliyahu... I, uh, I agree with you that we need to eliminate the Baal worship, but you're right about that, that Ahab has to go. You're right about that, that the house of Ahab is bad and that, you know, there needs to be a re- revolution and that there has to be a change of dynamic. But it's not going to happen through fire. It's not going to happen in a moment like that.
1: Eliyahu would have liked this for that to happen immediately. But I'm telling you is, you're going to establish anyone who's going to do it. Oh, by the way, that's going to happen in a hundred years from now, or like in fifty right. years from now. That's how a chain of
2: events normally happens: small, steady steps. Right, Whereas things read, right. gradually. I
1: think of how like Elyud is It takes right. time; it's not what like it happens
0: immediately. Right. So it's it's Eliyahu could not conceive of operating in that way. And that, that was that was the difficulty. He was such a purist that he wasn't able to tolerate the gradual process. And uh, and you know, and things to him were so clear, and you know, there were people like that that they kind of have a sense of what's right and wrong, and they're very and in whatever they do, they do it to the you know, to the nth degree. They don't have a, a concept of balance. Um, Eliyahu didn't have a concept of of being able to, couldn't tolerate the gradual development. And the fact of the matter is the reality of it is that the event at Carmel did have an impact on the people. It actually did have a long-term effect on the people. Just that long-term effect didn't become apparent until later. It was, it was something that took a while for them to process and to work its way through and to bear fruit. It wasn't a meaningless exercise what he did, but since he only evaluated things in such a uh, black and white kind of a way, he wasn't able to uh, he wasn't able to see that he had planted seeds that actually could bear fruit. And in a way, like maybe this anointing of these kings and so on is almost a tikkun for Eliyahu, because he has to do something that by its nature is not going to bear fruit in the immediate future. By its nature, is only going to set up the process that's going to go on its own speed and its own steam to, to achieve the objective. His object, which says again, his objectives are right. It's just that his means uh, were not effective. His means weren't effective, and they were driven by his subjective, uh, you know, a subjective interest for an immediate result. That was that was the problem.
2: Bye-bye. In our description of El he does seem to have an alarming amount of the same zealousness and quick to make decisions that they there's seemingly no verbal interaction, and he's so quick to take this new job. And there's even like an interesting note here it makes note that uh, when Elisha slaughters the very cows he's using to plow the field, this is his sign of him quitting, like right, well, I'm
0: resignation,
2: I'm done, I'm slaughtering the cows did now and i all mm-hmm. to see right it's only through elias lens who has a super high standard of "Oh, you want to kiss your parents and what's up only through his compared to him he might seem a little more reserved any of us he just give up his whole life
0: yeah He's but I, I think there's a di- i think that um my assumption is when i read the story elisha his encounter with Eliyahu is not coming out of nowhere because obviously if Elisha was worthy of being a Navi following the footsteps of Eliyahu, he was already on the brink of that level. And he might've even had an inkling or had a prophetic uh, uh, foreknowledge that that Eliyahu was gonna come. Because I don't think he just would've known from Eliyahu throwing his mantle on him, oh, all of a sudden I'm supposed to, it's like uh, how, it's not like a a Yoda training, uh, Luke Skywalker situation where, you know, Luke Skywalker doesn't even realize that he has the ability to use the force. It's not, I think that Elisha is, um, is, is someone who is on the brink of being a Navi or is already uh, a Navi and is, is, is aware that the possibility that, uh, of the possibility that Eliyahu would come and mentor him. And so it's not coming out of left field because otherwise what a guy throws his cloak on you and five minutes later you quit your job and you follow him. I mean, that would, be, that would be pretty wild. It seems like he was primed for that already.
2: Can we assume from this interaction that they had some sort of familiarity
0: that he knew who he was? He knew who he was. He definitely knew who he was. That, I think that's clear. Whether he might have even been expecting him. He might, he might have had an inkling that he was going to come for him at some point. And that, and and therefore, when he came, it was like something that was not a totally out of left field. That that's my impression. I think he probably was awaiting it and uh, and and hoping for it because who would not want? Look, in terms of like we said before, like we said in the first stories, in terms of Yediyata shem and truth and knowledge of the Darche Hashem, you're not going to get better than Eliyahu. Where he's missing is the ability to have Midat Rahamim and Midat Erchapaim to gradually guide the people towards Yudiyat Hashem. He doesn't have that. He doesn't have the Tchuna of Moshe Rabbeinu which was the sensitivity to the people's limitations and the people's resistances and the people's conflicts and therefore a willingness to work with them to slowly move them towards a very elusive level. He had high expectations of himself and high ex and as you can see, and, and therefore commensurately high expectations of other people that w- don't match everybody's character, because not everyone is going to drop everything and uh follow what they see as the truth at the at the turn of, you know, on a dime like that. Not everybody is capable of that. And 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 most people are not. Most people are not capable of. Having a single insight in changing their life. And so the, and the, only a rare character can do that. And he expected the people to do that. What do you say?
2: Uh, you <laughs>
1: No, he's not here. Yeah. If, if we're judging, we're So if we're judging, before you said that great, the, the greater
0: the Nabi, the more miracles you
2: can
1: you can perform, correct? Right? right. So
0: can we get into that? And Shah, we do double the amount of miracles, and the other. Well, the Chazals say, I mean, the the, the say that Elisha did, you know resurrected more people than Eliyahu, so therefore he was, you know, he had Pishnayim Meruchacha. He, he asked for double of the Ruach of Eliyahu, and Eliyahu was like, that's a very hard thing to ask. But he got it. But he got it. So he built on what Eliyahu had and uh, and and took it to a new level by integrating it. Basically what he did was, he took the kind of Moshe Rabbeinu qualities of Eliyahu and had his own kind of Aharon type qualities that he was able to integrate them with and synthesize them. So he was able to have simultaneously the kind of breadth of vision of Eliyahu, but a uh, a willingness to work with the people and accept them for who they were, that was more characteristic of a type of Aharon uh, Kohen or Shmuel Navi, someone who was more grounded Uh, among the people and that's the uh, look Eliyahu is um, a type of person like I think you said once when we were in Israel the guy who used to yell by the Kotel the guy was crying and yelling and you know in the beginning for all of us it was hard to pray because he was very noisy but eventually a couple of you commented you know what you need a person like that to be there like there's a there's a need for a person like that to be there to remind you that, you know the rest of us are kind of indifferent to the Jorban Beta mikdash, and this guy's wailing all the time, literally, you know, you can't get away from it. So in the same way, as much as Eliyahu wasn't the most effective educator of the people, he was a person that we needed to see because you need to see that that type of a person of truth can exist. and that type of person of truth does, you know reflect a certain ideal. In terms of personal development. It's just not an idea. In other words, if you want to be honest, in a perfect world, people would be the way Eliyahu wanted them to be. They would be willing to follow the truth on the at the drop of a hat wherever it led and not have any attachment or resistance or conflict about it at all. But in a real, in the real world in which we live, Eliyahu is not going to be able to uh, impact most people. Shah will be able to because most people are not actually like that. But wouldn't it be a shame if we didn't have a person like Eliyahu to remind us what that ideal actually is? Because maybe we can aspire to that and maybe that's why and and I'm not I'm just saying this as a maybe, I don't know, maybe that's why Eliyahu is associated with the guildnah. Because in Eliyahu time, you know, in the, in the Geulah time, we'll be ready. We'll be ready for the truth. Give us the truth. We're, we, we don't have an attachment to anything else. And that's why it also says in the, you know, the Zohar says, not, I usually don't quote uh, Kabbalistic things because uh, I don't understand that much Kabbalah, but the Zohar talks about, or, you know, the Kabbalah talks about in the times of the Mashiach, the, everyone always quotes this, that the halacha will follow Beit Shamay instead of Beit Tilel. And earlier we said that uh, the reason why Beit Tilel was favored over Beit Shammai was because Beit Tilel were, were, was, were, were people that were loved and, and warm and, and they got along with everybody and they were humble and they, they were sweet and endearing and all that. So they made the Torah more accessible and more palatable, even though they might not have had the truth all the time. Beit Shammai had the truth. They were closer to the truth, but Beitilel, they were the ones that were more reached out to the people and were accessible to the people. So that followed So maybe the idea of Halacha following Beit Shammai is the same as the idea of Eliyawa Navi coming. That you know, he does epitomize a certain ideal, how levi that we could be like Eliyawa Navi, and whenever we saw the truth, we could let go of whatever's holding us back and embrace the truth and not have any and not have to look back. That 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 would be pretty amazing. That's it's just that. You're, if you're, if you're, does, does Hashem want
1: that? Like, is that the problem? Is that, that person Hashem wants? Has
0: I don't know. What, I don't know what that would mean, but like, yeah. It's
1: people like that. Like, it doesn't work. We have to do in this world what
0: works. Right. Not, but, right. So the thing is, the thing is, if a person, a person has free choice. So. In, in theory, I think we could agree in theory, let's say with Eliyahu, that in a perfect world, in an ideal situation, when I see the truth, I should follow the truth. And if I see that the, that what I'm doing is in conflict with the truth, how do you think I should you do that's that's what? If we're
1: gonna think in terms of theory, okay, yeah, uh, ideally we can all be perfect, but, but we're not. We live in a perfect world.
2: And also there's a good. bunch of places with us as people that we aren't able to take the message out and take it away for return. They didn't leave because she wasn't taken away of wrong. It wasn't compatible of the world. Which, which is the news for us also. So. Yeah. We should read the message and be like, why are we the kind of people that that wouldn't be acceptable to our message if it is the truth? We need to learn about that on an individual basis how to become a kind of people that be receptive to that. So don't have a point to figure out. It's true, but set, it's not just the teacher wrong and all the kids are right. The the teacher is wrong. The teacher is wrong. Yeah. Yeah. But using the th- kind of teacher is
0: wrong. So he's not The teacher is a yeah. chef, right? Yeah. No, and, and Hashem, like, look, like the Rambam says, Hashem took the people in a roundabout way to come to the desert, to come to Eretz Israel, right? In Bishalach, it says that he didn't take them uh, uh, directly because they would see war and they would go back. And the Rambam says that that teaches you a principle about how Hashem deals with people in general, that he takes things gradually. He takes you roundabout. He takes you the way that you can handle it, right? That's, that, that's El er HaPayim but a person who can live in line with Emet is the highest level person. In other words, the less we have to compromise on our, on our commitment to truth, the higher level we are. There's, the, 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 there's a difference between saying, what is the ideal way for a person to live and what is realistically what we can expect from people and how we should treat them. And what's realistic about how we we inter, how we how relate to people and treat them is that it should be gradual and with er virav chesed, and all of that. But when it comes to the ultimate ideal, it should be to live by the truth to the extent we can. And we battle with ourselves to try to become as authentic in our in our way of life as we possibly can. So Eliyahu Navi is a person who achieved that level of authenticity and truthfulness in his life. The problem was he wasn't able to uh, bridge the gap between that and ordinary people. But I think it's good to have, just like it's good to have Hanina Ben who shows you an extreme of putting the, the spiritual and the intellectual above everything or having the stories about Rabbi Shimon bar Yochai that lives in a cave for years learning Torah, not because everyone's gonna do that, but because it's good to recognize that, yeah, there is, you know, total devotion to Hashem, like is, it would be the ideal for a human being it's just not pra- it's not realistic because we're so far from that level we have so many other attachments and conflicts and worries and responsibilities and so on and so forth that we can't we can't imagine doing that but it's something that it's good to remind us of uh, you know what that level might look like what a you know what a Rabbi Shimon bar Yochai, Rabbi Hanina ben Dosa, Moshe Rabenu, Avram Avinu, leaving everything behind. All of these people are people that we uh, can be inspired by to try to come closer to being uh, you know to to living truthfully and and uh, and not compromising on our values more than than you know than is justified. I, I think it's I think that Eliyawa is a great. That's why Eliyahu is such a great figure in the tradition, despite his limitations, you know? And it's like, uh, you hear about certain teachers also that are college professors that are the greatest geniuses as as teachers, but they're the most, they're so demanding that their students suffer being in their classes, you know? Because they're so demanding, it's so extreme that like one of the famous ones is Rabbi Salvechik's son, Chaim Solveitchik. He's known for that. He's known to be such an extreme demanding professor that like a woman was going into labor and he's like, sorry, you failed because you didn't hand in your paper on time. Okay? And and he said there's no Rahmanut in, in academia. Okay? That's a little crazy. But the idea is that there, that's like an Eliawanavi type of attitude. Meaning, you know, you it's it there there's a there's an absolute reality. You didn't live up to it. That's it. So, I'm not saying that's how we should ever treat anybody else and probably we shouldn't treat ourselves that way either because we're not being realistic about where we are. But to try to teach ourselves to live in line with the truth to the extent of our ability is definitely a uh, a goal. So, Hashem. So, I'll see you guys at uh 9:30 your time. I your time. We're going to do a q and
1: I think so. You want do uh, you want to gather some questions
0: beforehand or you are good job plan? No, whatever you want. It doesn't matter. OK? <laughs>
2: we'll
0: okay, time. Time. OK, I'll see you guys later. I, yeah. I, I, I wish we had done more Agadot. Those were fun.